The title of this morning's message is, Is the Judge Still at the Door? <laughs> You're going to love this, right? <laughs> this morning I want to talk to you about the judgment of God <laughs> and how we can best interpret what the Word of God says regarding God's judgment. His judgment for believers, for unbelievers, and for the old covenant system. I believe that what happened in AD 70 to the Jewish temple and to Jerusalem was a judgment on the old covenant system, not a judgment on the Jews themselves. And what I hope you will see through this message is that we as believers don't have any reason at all to fear our Father's or our Jesus' judgment. The title of this message refers to a scripture that comes out of the book of James. James chapter 5, verse 9 says this. This is the King James. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned, which just means judged, to judge against. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now that doesn't sound very encouraging. <laughs> so my question is, is he still standing at that particular door? <laughs> is he just waiting for an opportunity to pour out his wrath on all the naughty little human beings in the world? And my answer is absolutely not. No, he's not standing at that door. And that's the really good news of the gospel. God is not mad at humanity. Yes, he still hates sin, because sin hurts the human beings that he loves. <laughs> and he happens to love all of the human beings, the righteous ones and the unrighteous ones. For the past several months, I've been ministering out of the book of James and using James's new identity as both a born-again son of God and a bondservant of both the Lord Jesus and the Father as the basis of my point of view for gleaning some of what the book of James has to teach us. While I was meditating over the book, I came to this particular scripture. The judge is standing at the door. <laughs> oh, yay, God, really? <laughs> I said to myself, wow, there is so much we have to know from outside of this letter in order to best understand what's inside this letter. So that's why the Lord led me to minister a message called Rescued, which is about a better understanding of what reconciliation between God and mankind really is. God has reconciled the whole world to himself. That means he's not mad at anybody. He's not holding sins against anybody. Does that mean they're saved? No. <laughs> Jesus is salvation. God's not holding your sins against you so that you can come to Jesus. <laughs> He's the salvation. He's the everlasting life. So this salvation, this Jesus, provides the rescue that everyone needs. And it's completely available only as a gift. You can't buy it. You can't make a deal to get it. <laughs> I'll do this if you do that. No, God doesn't do deals. He only does gifts. And then he led me to minister a message on rethinking the end times, which I told God I would never do, <laughs> which is really about understanding Scripture within its historical context. We need both of those understandings in our heart as we study this Scripture 
in James. As believers, we tend to treat our Bibles as though they were written to us, but they weren't. That's really super important. <laughs> they were written for us and for our learning, absolutely. So when we read the Bible, we are actually reading somebody else's mail that just happens to have been organized and published. The writers of the New Testament had no idea that what they wrote would go into eternity. They were just following the Holy Spirit. They thought they were just you know, writing letters to the Jews, the believers. They had no idea what they were putting together. So, <laughs> in order to properly understand what is written, we need to know about the person who wrote it, who it was written to, the time period in which it was written, and what the theme of the letter is. In other words, why it was written. All of this helps us to better understand the contents of the letter or the book of the Bible. Now, as a young believer, I didn't pay much attention to that kind of stuff at all. I thought it was just all very boring. <laughs> I just wanted the Holy Spirit to speak to me through the written word of God about my stuff, <laughs> about my life, <laughs> which he absolutely did. But because I was taking some things out of context, I would often feel scolded, condemned, and even fearful. So when I came to the revelation that the scriptures were not written to me, but for me, it changed everything for me. I quit reading the Bible as if it was a how-to manual. Most Christians read their Bibles so they know what to do, instead of knowing what to believe. And I started reading the Bible as if God was communicating through people to people <laughs> who lived a really long time ago <laughs> and through whom I could learn what God was trying to communicate to those specific people at that specific time. In other words, I learned that not everything in the Bible applies to me. This is good news. There's <laughs> a whole lot of judgment in the Bible. <laughs> it's good to know it doesn't apply to me. So in James 5, 9, James tells his reader that judgment is right around the corner at that time in history, not 2,000 years in the future. This, of course, is important for us to know and remember. He's not talking to us. He's talking to those who were alive at that time. Now, when we look at the context of this particular verse, we see what appears to be a very angry Jewish believer named James, <laughs> who is trying to both encourage the believers who are enduring great persecution, especially from their own people, and also chastise those who may or may not have believed in Jesus, but who James believes are in need of being chastised. Talking about judgment. Hmm. <laughs> so James speaks to two different audiences at the same time. Jesus did this too. When you're talking to a crowd, you don't know who's for you and who's against you. <laughs> Jesus, of course, knew because the Holy Spirit revealed to him that people like the Pharisees were very much against him. They knew when Jesus was speaking specifically to them. In other words, it was the if the shoe fits type of approach. If it doesn't fit your foot, don't worry about it. But if it fits your foot, you might want to pay attention. <laughs> We see the same kind of thing in James, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5, which says this, Go 
too now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Does that sound like the good news? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> James is not addressing all rich people, which some believers, they read their Bible, God's mad at rich people. We shouldn't be rich. Totally false. <laughs> He's addressing rich Jewish people who might be trusting in their own riches instead of in trusting in Jesus and his grace. The Jews always believed that the riches were the sign that you were blessed by God and approved. Obviously, that was not always the case. Verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse 3, your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. The word for there is actually in, E-N, and it means in. <laughs> he says, you've heaped out all this treasure in the last days. The last days of what? What last days is James talking about? In Acts, we find a very familiar passage to us spirit-filled believers that indicates that the last days were back then and not in the future. This is Luke quoting the prophet Joel, Acts 2, verses 17 and 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Even the prophet Joe says, in those days, in those last days. In these scriptures, we clearly recognize that God is doing a whole new thing in and through the new covenant. God turned human beings into temples <laughs> by filling them with the Holy Spirit and giving them a whole new government that lived inside of them. Heaven, the place where God lives and governs from, came to live inside of us so that we, as believers, could bring forth a whole new government on the earth. That's the mission. Heaven on earth to human beings filled with God. What a great idea. <laughs> this is the picture the Apostle Paul paints for us in Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. This is the Passion Translation, and I had to put it all in here because I really like it. <laughs> I am convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of the glory that is about to be unveiled where? In us. The entire universe is standing on tiptoe, yearning to see the unveiling of God's glorious sons and daughters. For against its will, the universe itself has had to endure the empty futility resulting from the consequences of human sin. But now, with eager expectation, all creation longs for the freedom from its slavery to decay and to experience with us the wonderful freedom coming to God's children. To this day, we are aware of the universal agony and the groaning of creation as if it were in contractions of labor for childbirth. The world is going to be born again just like us. And these groanings have nothing to do with 
the world passing away, but becoming new. Verse 23. And it's not just creation. We who have already experienced the first fruits of the Spirit also inwardly groan as we passionately long to experience our full status as sons and daughters, including the physical bodies being transformed. Verse 24. For this is the hope of our salvation. But hope means that we must trust and wait for what is still unseen. For why would we need to hope for something that we already have? The Apostle Paul was looking forward to the spiritual transformation of the planet Earth that would usher in a physical transformation of planet Earth and our physical bodies. He wasn't looking for the destruction of planet Earth, but its redemption. Our full redemption includes our physical bodies. And yes, it is available now. So a major indicator of the last days was that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit took place, which only happened once, but is continuously available. Believers often pray for one another and for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come again. <laughs> God said, no, I poured it all out and it's a continuous supply. It's always available. You don't have to beg and plead for God to pour out his spirit. He already did. Now, what they actually mean when they say that is, God, we want to see the signs and wonders. We want to see the spectacular, <laughs> which is fine. Go ahead, ask, believe. But God's not pouring out his spirit again. It's a continuous gift, a full supply. My point is that when God poured out his spirit, it was indeed the last days. But the last days of what? Obviously, it isn't the last days of the physical earth because it's still here. <laughs> it was the last days of the old covenant. The last days the Jewish leaders had power over to govern and mistreat their people. It was the last days of the Jewish temple itself. And it was the last days available for the stubborn, self-righteous Jews of that day to turn away from their own works and their own understanding and receive the true Messiah, Jesus, the one and only true Son of God and their only way of salvation. The old covenant became obsolete. God never intended that believers would walk, try to walk in both covenants. It would no longer provide the way of salvation. God would no longer accept the blood of bulls and goats, to cover their sins. Only faith in the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the whole world, was now the only way of salvation. Only by faith in what Christ had done. Jesus told his disciples that everything he prophesied in Matthew 24 would be complete and completely fulfilled within 40 years. And of course, it was. Even if we don't understand all the details of all of those scriptures, if Jesus said, this will be done, then it was. Jesus is God, and God doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't lie. So for the next 40 years, believers watched for the signs of the times that Jesus spoke of. And thankfully, in that same 40 years, the New Testament was written. And in it, we find that the apostles didn't forget what Jesus had told them. We can see this in 2 Peter chapter 3. I begin with verse 1, and I will end with verse 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder 
that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In the end of Daniel 9, God gives Daniel the timeline for the appearance of the Messiah. It will be a total of 490 years. Within that timeline, the temple, the first one, will be rebuilt, and it'll be the second one. The Messiah will appear within the last seven years of the 490, and he will be killed, but not for his own sin. And then he will bring in an everlasting righteousness. Hallelujah! No more temporary righteousness, an everlasting righteousness. And then the prince from a foreign government will appear and destroy the temple and put an end to all animal sacrifices once and for all. All of which happened just the way Daniel foretold it would. And in the time period, Jesus said it would. The last days were 40 years following his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Our last days? No, their last days, following their own sinful desires. <laughs> I love this next one. When I was writing this, I thought, you know, this sounds like a drunk coming up to Peter at a bar. <laughs> and he's, you know, all drunk. He's like, where is the promise of his coming? <laughs> Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, I don't see any judgment. I don't see any prophecy being fulfilled. I'm going to start a fight with you. <laughs> For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay, he's talking about the flood. You see, his question is about judgment, not the end of the world. He's not asking when the world's going to cease to be. He says, I want to know where this judgment is. I know about God's judgment with Noah. Where's this judgment that has been prophesied? Peter answers him. He says, remember that, that judgment? The world existed and was deluged and with water and perished. Did it? <laughs> Did it perish? Not the way we might think if we don't understand Noah and the flood. The world received a world-changing judgment. The world was never the same after that. That's what Peter's talking about, a judgment that changes the way the world operates going forward. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist now he's talking about a different heavens and earth. If you don't have the Jewish decoder ring, <laughs> you're going to miss it. He's talking about the judgment that's coming in the last days upon what they called heaven and earth, which is Jewish code for the temple. Heaven was where God lived, and earth is where man did his work. <laughs> that was the code. Then he goes on and says, this heaven and earth that exists right now is stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. God doesn't count time the same way we do. And he was in no hurry to bring judgment. So Peter answers this man who's saying, where is it? 
Why should I believe you? <laughs> I don't see it. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Where's the you? Back there in that day, in those last days. He's not saying, I'm going to be patient with all of mankind. No, this is a specific judgment for a specific reason, and it's going to change the world, literally. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves and loved all the Jewish people, all of them. But not all the Jewish people loved God. <laughs> These 40 years of last days were really God's mercy, giving the unfaithful in Israel an extended opportunity to receive their Messiah. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord, need your Jewish decoder ring, judgment. <laughs> the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, and actually that word is in it, <laughs> will be exposed. This is the same kind of symbolic language that Jesus used in Matthew 24, verse 29. And it must be interpreted symbolically to understand it. It says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Same exact wording when the judgment from Israel came upon Egypt. Same exact. Sun, moon, and stars. You have to have the Jewish decoder ring to understand that we cannot read a very symbolic and poetic language and not understand what they're actually talking about. Jesus was talking about what was going to happen in the Jewish government. Just like with Joseph, when Joseph told his mom and dad and the brothers, I had a dream, and you're all going to bow down to me. And the dad said, you are out of your mind, son. Ain't nobody here bowing down to you. It was about government. He was going to rule over them. It was about a different rulership. And so this is as well. Because when Christ died, Satan was defeated. And a new ruler, a new king came on the earth. And yes, he's king on the earth right now. In both 2 Peter 3.10 and in Matthew 24.29, he's talking about the judgment and the demise of the unfaithful nation of Israel and the old covenant system with its temple. The Jewish believers at that time understood the prophecies of both Daniel and Jesus. They all knew it. <laughs> and some of the Jews were becoming impatient about waiting to be delivered from the Jewish authorities. The Jewish authorities, the Jewish church at that time, persecuted the Christians unmercifully. And they were waiting for God to come and handle them. <laughs> they knew the prophecy. He's coming. The temple is coming down. And that means they no longer get to rule over us. So other Jews were mocking the prophecies and trusting in the presence of the temple, just like their forefathers did in the Old Testament. Their forefathers didn't believe that judgment would come upon Israel and her temple. So they refused to leave Jerusalem and go into the safety of captivity in Babylon, which was time out. <laughs> if you believe me, go into time out. You'll be safe in time out. If you don't believe me, you're going to die. And that's exactly what happened. 
their forefathers refused to leave Jerusalem and to go into safety, which is what God had told them to do. They refused. So they perished. And the Jews of Peter's day were doing the exact same thing. The Jews at the time of the first destruction of the temple had no righteousness. If your law says if you do X, Y, and Z, that makes you right, they had none. Jeremiah says, Jeremiah, go find me one righteous. One, and I'll spare it. So he went to Jerusalem, and he couldn't find one. What does that tell you about the priesthood and the people they were governing? They had all abandoned the Lord their God. They were all in the temple trying to get other deities, quote unquote, <laughs> to give them what they wanted. They had utterly abandoned God and his covenant. They were an adulterous bride. And because of that, God told them he was going to leave. In Ezekiel, you see the presence of God actually leaves and nobody notices <laughs> because they weren't seeking him. They were an adulterous people. And unfortunately, they believed that as long as the temple stood, it was a sign that God approved of them and they would never come into judgment. They didn't put their trust in their husband, but in their temple, their doing. They trusted in themselves instead of in their Savior. In the Old Testament, just before the direction of the first temple, the presence of God actually left. And it broke God's heart. It broke God's heart. He never wanted that. He never abandoned them. They abandoned him. Even in the New Testament, even though the Jews knew something strange happened when the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn, <laughs> they just ignored it. <laughs> no, he's still here. We're sure he's still here. But they believed that somehow their temple would cause God to stay and bless them. The Jews of that day mocked those who believed in Jesus as the true Messiah and those who were still waiting for the prophesied judgment. They thought, you're crazy. We haven't even seen the real Messiah yet. They are still to this day looking for a Messiah. Even though Daniel says, there's only a period of time in which Messiah will show up. And if he doesn't show up, then he's not coming. <laughs> so those who mocked, and those who were faithful, they all knew about the prophecy. The impatient faithful that wanted God to give those naughty unbelievers what he thought they should get. They wanted judgment to come on Israel. Second Peter 3.11 says this, Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what things? The heaven and earth temple things, and all the things in it and all of Israel's wicked governing power, and the entire system itself, the system of worship, was going to be destroyed. What, he says, in light of this, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening. You cannot hasten God. <laughs> it means to eagerly desire. Waiting for and eagerly desiring what? The coming of the day of God. 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars will fall. They will melt as they burn. This is symbolic language representing the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed. Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting, expecting with anticipation for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. New heavens, new earth. I am now the temple. You are now the temple in which righteousness dwells. And how does it grow? By bringing others in. The kingdom of God is at work in this world. He is always at work on behalf of his humans, his saved ones and his unsaved ones. He is not looking to destroy anybody. The creation still groans for the manifestations of the sons of God to bring forth the power of righteousness and the government of heaven, which just happens to live on the inside of us. The entire world is a better place because of the difference that believers make. I read a poll some time ago about charity, and it said 97 plus percent of all charity giving is done by people who claim Christ. 97% of believers are supporting all of the charities in the entire world. Are we making a difference? (laughs) Amen. Less than 3% come from those who deny Christ. Are they making a difference? Not in any kind of a good way. What I wanted you to see in this passage is that the last days are the days between the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the fulfillment of Daniel's and Jesus' prophecy, which describes the complete judgment of the old covenant system. Let's go back to James chapter 5. And we'll pick up with James continuing to scold the wicked rich. (laughs) Verse 3. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. I'm not really good at King James sometimes. <laughs> Ye have heaped treasure together for or in the last days. And they knew that to be the truth. Verse 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord Sabaoth. He didn't say, God hears. He says, The Lord said, by all hears, (laughs) the God of angel armies hears. And we know what these armies do. They fight for the righteous and they come against the wicked. So yes, James is threatening them (laughs) with the Lord. (laughs) Verse five, ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just. What? (laughs) ye have condemned and killed the just and he doth not resist you these are some bad folks (laughs) there's a reason that James is so harsh with them they had absolutely rejected the true and living God and his son Jesus Christ and you could tell by how they lived their life at this point in the passage James changes the direction of who he's speaking to he goes from scolding what appears to be very rich and wicked Pharisee types, to speaking to those who have been on the receiving end of the rich and wicked Pharisee types. And he says this, be patient. 
Nobody who's going through tribulation wants to be patient. <laughs> he says, no, be patient, brethren. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is right around the corner. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he received the early and the latter rain. What? <laughs> he goes from talking to them about being murderers and then he continues on to talk to them about sowing and reaping. The earth brings forth its precious fruit, but you have to wait for it. It's a natural process. What you sow, you will reap. Scripture says God is not mocked. No one can sow to the flesh and reap of the Spirit. No one. Verse 8. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. It draweth nigh for them, not for us. We see that the coming of the Lord is good for the underdog, while simultaneously being not so good for the wicked, rich Pharisee type. Verse 9. Grudge or grumble not against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned, judged against. Not by God, but by those who you're grumbling against. Who were they grumbling against? The wicked people in power. So God, he's saying, don't even talk against them. <laughs> they have power right now, but it's not going to last. You've got to wait for me to come and rescue you. Don't try to take it into your own hands. You'll end up dead. These people murder people. <laughs> Just wait for the Lord. He's coming. He's coming quickly. You need to know that. Both of them needed to know that. Jesus said in the Gospels, judge not lest ye be judged. In other words, whatever judgment you sow against others, that's the kind of judgment you will reap from others. <laughs> it's the law of sowing and reaping. God does not judge us based on how we judge other people. If we do it wrong, he's not going to turn around and do the same exact thing. No, he's talking about you will reap what you sow. You judge your brother, you're going to reap judgment from your brother. Don't do that. <laughs> Wait for me to rescue you. And then it says this, Behold, the judge standeth before the doors. The King James only has the word door singular. But if you look it up in the Greek, it's actually a plural word. They should have used the word doors. To what doors is James referring? The Matthew 24 doors. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and pulleth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh, at hand, near, coming upon you. That's what nigh means. <laughs> So likewise, ye, when ye see all these things, what things? The persecution. Apostles losing their heads. <laughs> he says it's going to happen. <laughs> when you see all of these things that Jesus prophesied, know that the end is near even at the doors. It was then. It's not now. It was for the temple system. It wasn't even for the Jewish people. It was for the system that made you work to earn your father's love. Verse 34, For verily I say unto you, this generation 
shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And then he gets all <laughs> symbolic again. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The promised judgment and destruction that Daniel foretold and the great tribulation that Jesus had prophesied would come. Now you have to remember Jesus said the great tribulation is coming within 40 years. He didn't say sometime in the way far away future. Why would we want to believe the great tribulation is still waiting for us? We are not wicked. <laughs> he doesn't judge us wicked. He judges us as righteous. He doesn't bring judgment, bad kind, against his children. Not even if they're naughty. <laughs> the judgment would come upon those rich, wicked, pharisaical types, and those who were under their persecution would finally be rescued. So James says, just wait. To me, James is suddenly very calm. He's very angry at the wicked rich. But he's very calm when he's talking to believers. He calmly advises them to be patient in their persecution and to wait for the Lord to bring forth justice not vengeance, on their behalf. And to bless them, he goes on, then bless them, God, even as you blessed Job after his trials and tribulations. He got everything back. <laughs> and he says, yes, believe for that. You're getting everything back. But James doesn't go on to say anything beyond the threat of the angel armies for the wicked pharisaical Jews. But both the good guys and the bad guys in his audience would have heard James remind them about the judge that stands at the door. When I read through chapter 4, which is very, very harsh, <laughs> and then into chapter 5, James comes across to me as being incredibly angry at his fellow misbehaving Jews who really should know better than to live the way they were living. At first, I thought that maybe it was James's own self-righteousness that caused him to be so angry with his fellow Jews. His nickname was James the Just, James the Righteous. That's quite a nickname. <laughs> oh, this James, this is James the Just. <laughs> he never does anything wrong. <laughs> James the Righteous. And he was called that because he lived outwardly a very holy life even before he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Messiah. What if he came across so angry with them because he loved them and was afraid for them? And he was hoping that the truth and the reality of death and judgment coming quickly on their heels would be enough to bring them to their senses. Isn't that the way Jesus talked to the Pharisees too? He wasn't nice to them. <laughs> he knew they needed something harsh to wake them up. You know this, guys. You can't live the way you live and enter into the heaven's gates. It won't be done. Of course, there's no way to know. But what we do know, the judgment the judge was bringing was on the old covenant system of worship. God never really liked it. <laughs> it was the law that brought wrath. It was the law that was the strength of sin. And it was time for the law and the old covenant system to receive its complete demise. And everybody knew it was coming. 
They simply chose not to believe the word of God through the mouth of their own Old Testament prophets. So why did so many Jews die in the siege of Jerusalem? Was God judging them for their sins? Was he judging them for rejecting Jesus? I don't believe so. Because all of their sins were on the cross. All of their sins had already received justice, just punishment of death. But they simply would not let go of what they thought they knew. They thought they could cheat God. They thought they could con God. They knew, everybody knows when you do something wrong, whether you're saved or not. <laughs> they knew. The judge standing at the door was good news for some and bad news for others. But all of this news was for those who lived at that time. The judge is not still standing at the door. God is not holding men's sins against them. Jesus told us that the judgment of this world happened at the cross. So God is not pouring out judgment on mankind. But there is a time when those who refuse to let go of their unbelief and insist on living in the darkness, that they will find there is a real judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Sometimes the truth of this can soften even the hardest heart. Sometimes this truth, with this knowledge, can open up a crack in their heart where they might consider hearing about the God who loves them, who came to rescue them from themselves and all of the bad things that they did. Because the truth is, they will have to face God as a just and perfect judge. Our Father is always willing to receive the sons that come into Him at the last minutes of their life. <laughs> because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The only time that it's ever too late is when you've already died. But that's not our judgment. It's not the believer's judgment. Will we as believers face our Lord at the judgment seat of Christ? I believe so. I know many grace ministers proclaim that there is no judgment for believers because there is no condemnation. Well, who says all judgment is a bad thing? <laughs> judgment is a decision. <laughs> and you know what? He makes good decisions for us. He judges us righteous. He judges us holy. He judges us blessable. What are we going to receive at the judgment seat of Christ? Praises. Rewards. He's going to decide just how much stuff he wants to shower us with. We don't even have a clue what that might look like. But God says there are crowns. What is that about? About being recognized. That all you went through on this earth did not go unnoticed. None of it. He said, I have so much good stuff for you. And that's when I'm going to decide. You did this and this and this and this. And these are why I'm going to pour out my praise on you and reward you. It may only be praise. For most of us, that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. 
So we don't have to fear God's judgment of us, even when we fail, even when we make mistakes. Oh, God is not in the judgment business. He's in the life business, eternal life. So we can have boldness on the day of judgment because we are as he is in this world. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. That when we read things in scripture that sound scary, we need to remember you've reconciled us, the whole world. You're now the world's friend (laughs) and you are the source of all salvation. We thank you, Father God, for this amazing grace and this amazing salvation and that you do the work in us and through us that you're going to praise us and reward us for what you did through us. (laughs) We thank you, Father God, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about your grace. It's all about your goodness. It's all about who you are in us and through us. Father God, make us world changers. Not all of us can change the entire world. but we can change our little piece of it. Help us, Father God, to walk in the grace that you have provided for us so that we don't participate in the judgment program, (laughs) that we don't go around judging others, even those who are failing, but we recognize that it is my job to lift you up and bring you before the throne of grace so that you can receive whatever you need for God to be able to bring victory in and through your life. Father God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.